Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. We're here. Gary, why don't you go ahead and, and get us with those beautiful intros of yours? Okay. It's Sunday, Sunday, Sunday over here at Ebor City Dra- Dragway. No, actually, we are not in Ebor City today. We are spread out all over the place because it's Halloween and our Carlos is over there in Daytona at the Champ Show. And we are going to jump into the rotation with a whole new spread today. So let's hear it for the theme music. So let me introduce the team here. Uh, we have our uh, deputy director, Carlos, who is not here right now. He is our master of business administration and uh, basically our token pay expat uh, Cuban who does not eat meat. We'll work on that later. Uh, and to my left, your right, no, other way around, uh, is our de- executive director, Chris Kano, normally above the beltway, hitting him below the beltway, but currently back in the Tampa area because we had a smash bang Halloween party yesterday. And oh, uh, yeah, uh, just days and days of Halloween parties, a lot of fun. So looking absolutely. Forward to and of course, I'm Gary Stein, the political director here at Suncoast Normal and the master of public health. And we are essentially the three of us because he's a master of public administration, the masters of cannabis. And because it's Halloween, I thought uh, I would bring on uh, my, my masks. Okay, here we go. This, this, is, this is my first costume. I have two of them. Can anybody <laughs> guess what I am? I'm the cannabis industry. Hey! Have you figured that one out yet? And... <laughs> Here's my other one. I'm 2% of the cannabis industry. <laughs> okay. That's, that's basically what it is. I mean, we have a huge industry, which is colorblind. In other words, they're blind to anybody else who's, who's not white. <laughs> that has basically been the way that the industry has been going, which doesn't make any sense because the populations that have been mostly affected by the war on drugs have been people of color. It had been essentially shut out from the industry, not just through politics, but also through economics. And in our cases, the state of Florida, our legislature. For those people who don't remember, in 2017, we passed SB8A, which created all sorts of licenses for medical, even though we were still trying to figure out the licenses for the CBD only program, which had started a couple of years earlier. And we hadn't gotten all those licenses out yet. Well, the one license, the one license that they had offered to people of color, the license for people who were involved in the Pigford class uh, lawsuit back in the 1990s, promised us in 2017, they finally put out the application in March of 2022. Not bad for only five years late. Only uh, how many different changes of uh, legislators, and yet they still went on with the same path. 
Well, one of the persons that's been following this in the very beginning, like myself, is our guest today, journalist extraordinaire from the news service of Florida. Hi out to Jim and everybody else out there who I always bug when I'm over, over there as well. But <laughs> this is Dara Cam. Dara, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm wondering if I can be the mistress of MMJ, if you're the master of cannabis. <laughs> that absolutely works for me. Of course, you, you're, you're in Tallahassee right now, right? I am. I live in Tallahassee and I work in Tallahassee, but I'm statewide. I mean, I cover statewide. And yeah, I've been in the whole uh, cannabis situation. That I, are we allowed to swear on here? Or? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Freely as you need to be. Because I swear like a sailor. Um, so I try to scale it back on my own podcast. But yeah, I mean, it's been clusterfuckery from day one in Florida. So, and I've been and I've been covering all all that, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and then some. I mean, it, 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 it must be fun living in Tallahassee. I, I go there, you know, I, I, I'm one of the... I'm like a snowbird of Tallahassee. You know, I go there when it's snowing, <laughs> basically, or whenever they have the we have the session, and then a couple times during the summer. But you're there all the time. Yeah, it, it must take a lot of patience to be able to handle yourself over there. There's a lot. I do a lot of court coverage. There's a lot of litigation that's come out of the last two legislative sessions. I also do political coverage, so covering some races. It's a you know midterm election year. Um, covering the, uh, in fact, I broke the news about the const the proposed constitutional amendment they're trying to get on the 2024 ballot for REC. Um, so yeah, I'm busy. I wouldn't say Tallahassee is a fun place to live. I, I think where you are down in the Tampa Bay area, that's one of my favorite places to be in the state. My daughter lives in St. Pete, so I try to get down there as much as I can. But yeah, it's definitely a lot happening right now in Tallahassee, as always. Of course, if you ask Pete Sorch, usually it's all about which restaurants are coming and which restaurants are going in Tallahassee. And they do have their, their fair share of uh, revolving doors when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a food snob. I'm a foodie, so I don't eat out a lot. I like to cook. And in fact, I was just out watering. I've got an organic raised, I have a couple of organic raised beds. So I'm growing some vegetables and, and into that. So I, my eating options are pretty limited. I have a kind of restricted diet. So, Well, are you one of those guys that, that grows microgreens in the kitchen? I actually do, yeah. <laughs> You are such a lib. <laughs> I just it's like to think too. I'm a nerdy. I'm I'm a foodie. And I'm a nerd too, but I'm a foodie. Yeah. I'm just wondering how things have changed since uh we last had a uh, a uh, democratic uh majority in, in Tallahassee, whether the, the town itself has changed too. I would the have loved to have uh, yeah, the town has changed. It's become, um, I think, a lot more affluent. I think there's more of a divide between the people in government and the university crowd. They're, they're, they seem to have very separate lives. The, there's a lot of young, it, it's much younger. The, the powers of government or the, the 
people involved in what we call the process are much younger now than they used to be. You know, the governor's young. He's got a young family. First time we've had children in the governor's mansion in, I think, 20, 30, in 30 years. I might be wrong by a couple of years on that, but it's been a long time. So it's a younger, much more affluent, sophisticated, conservative uh, crowd in Tallahassee than it used to be, although it still is very democratic leaning, but not as much, uh, but not as much as it used to be. And of course, with the way they've drawn the new Senate district, yeah. that may have an impact on our represent my 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 state senator is Lorianne Osley she lives just a couple blocks from where I live in Lafayette Park in Tallahassee um, which is in Midtown and uh you know there's a lot of talk right now one of the most talked about races that actually is a race that is a that could be a close race is uh she's she's being challenged by Republican Corey Simon a former uh, football standout. So it, it has, Tallahassee's changed since I moved here 30 years ago, for sure. Well, let's get into one of the topics we wanted to talk about today. And that is uh, the upcoming general election. Because people want to know who to vote for. They're really confused. They don't even know which ones are the ghost candidates and which ones are alive, which happens a lot in Florida, unfortunately, more so than we need to say it actually happens. There are no, are there any ghost candidates in this particular election? I don't know of any, Gary, but I haven't been following the local elections outside of the the one that I just mentioned. I'm not aware of any ghost candidates. I would be surprised if there were, given all the attention that that it has been drawn to the one in Miami and the one the ones in Miami and the one in um, in the. Broder seat in in Central Florida in Orlando, so I, I I'm not aware of any. And in terms of telling people who to vote for, I can't do that. Uh, that's you know that would be outside my lane as a journalist. But I can tell you that I recently made a prediction, and I'll make it again, that I think that the Republicans are going to sweep the governor's race, the U.S. Senate race, and the cabinet races, we will not have a statewide elected Democrat, and the Republicans will pick up seats in the state house, the state Senate, and Congress. So Florida will be a ruby red state. I already thought that we were a red state, so I hope, I believe that after this 2022 election, after what is it in two, less than two weeks um that the national people will stop questioning whether florida is a still is a swing state or a purple state because we're not we're a red state if you look at the the number of rallies that are coming in and the people and the number of surrogates coming into the state it looks like the dnc has pretty much written off florida yeah and then that's a shame that's that, again it happens like that way <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you just, they don't have the resources in terms of, of, I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but, you know, Governor DeSantis is a rock star in, in Republican circles. And he's also gained a lot of traction among independents. And I think that the main 
one of the big, the, the key factors in folks supporting him was keeping the state open and during COVID or reopening it quickly after COVID. That really affected people in their pocketbooks, in their small businesses, business owners, workers, just they, they, you know, their lives were upended and they really, really appreciated that. And I, I, they, I gauge my election predictions. Uh, I haven't been out and about as much as I, as I used to be traveling all around the state in advance of the elections, but I had a I had the cable guy come over, not the old fashioned cable guy, but I had a guy come over from Comcast, whatever they're called now, Xfinity, a couple weeks ago, and he started telling me, you know, he's like, oh, I I I'm not into politics, I don't discuss politics. Of of oh, he was a Marine, served a couple of uh, tours of duty over in Iraq. But then when I started questioning him, he actually did have a lot of opinions about politics. And when I asked him about Ron DeSantis, he stopped what he was doing. He looked at me and he said, I love Ron DeSantis. And I thought, well, there you have it. That's just, you know, your average Joe average guy, Joe lunch bucket. And this happens to me when I go to the gas station, when I go to Costco, when I go when I go to the grocery store and I'm just talking to people outside of the bubble, like the more, the not all, but a lot of the people that I'm just having casual discussions with, not re quoting them for stories, they're very strong supporters of Ron DeSantis. And they're not all people who were hardline Republicans going into 2022. Well, in my, my, in my studies, I remember them saying that basically when you have a divisive issue, those people who are on the, the side that, that is the most divisive usually are the more active because they, they're thinking from their heart, not necessarily from their brain. And so it, it, it just seems like every time that he comes up with a divisive issue, he gets another big block of voters that are ready to jump on him and ready to take a bullet for him practically. I think it's also because the Republicans are really good at framing the narrative, what we call the narrative. And they're really good at, at creating bullet points and sticking to the bullet points. And the Democrats or the people who, you know, it's people who are in opposition to some of these policies. For example, I've been covering the whole issue about transgender uh, treat, treatment for, for gender dys, dysphoria you know, they're the people on the other side of the governor's policies are always in reaction mode. And it's very difficult to reframe the discussion when the when the governor is saying, you know, we're not going to let people mutilate, you know, we're not going to allow mutilation of children. It's re they're always on their back foot the the people who are in opposition to his policies they're always on the back foot and and that puts them at an inherent disadvantage now they're not going to go to go with the uh the, <clears throat> the the dismemberment of children but they have no problem with children having breakfast that basically include a coca-cola and a bag of chips because that's all they can get from the corner store 
on the way to school. Right. And the food desert issue. Yeah, that's a, a, another issue. I mean, one of the things that I think is problematic with one of these new laws about, you know, what you can teach in schools about race and history is, you know, it seems to me that you have to, you have to understand that there, we live in a world, we don't live in a post-racial society. We don't live in a society where we are beyond in, in baked in racism in a lot of our institutions that goes towards, you know, and this is not to be racist, to generalize, but urban schools where you have a larger population of African-American students, you have a disparity in funding for those schools. You have, I mean, there you can't talk about where we are today as a society without talking about how we got here. And I don't know how you can talk about how we got here with without talking, without I guess you can, but if somebody feels bad about it, then you're breaking the law. You know, the law says you can't teach about race and, and history in a way that makes somebody feel guilt or shame for being a member of a certain race or, or ethnic group. Do you know what I mean? Well, I have, I have a fix for Ron DeSantis. If he wants to make certain that nobody feels uncomfortable, why don't we have strictly from kindergarten to fourth grade, we only talk about tubbies. I, mean, although, <laughs> I think Teletubbies would fall into the category of what's banned because I it, wasn't there one. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. The one the blue one looked a little bit uh, uh, too much like they, they might be part of Equality Florida. Right. So that might exactly. be a different All right. So I'll have to pick maybe Care Bears or maybe the way they stare at you is, uh, is making people uncomfortable too. So forget the Care Bear stare. I don't know what can make you not feel and make, and make everybody in their comfort zone at all times. But as far as I know, I, mean, I think we're still basically just me, teaching. To me, I think like discomfort, when you feel uncomfortable about what you're talking about, that's a good thing because that means you're being challenged and you're having to question what you think you know. You know, I think that's part of the problem with where we're at today as a society. We are now only seeking out the news that reinforces what we think we already know. And so it's contributing to this tribalism this that we have where people will just, they only seek the, they, they only want to hear what supports their belief system. And that to me is a very dangerous thing. You know, we need to be challenged. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to think about, to question whether, whether, whether the, what the, we need to listen to what the other side is saying, not necessarily even think about them as the other side, but we need to be willing to be educated. And I don't know how you can do that without feeling uncomfortable sometimes. I forget whether it was Pope Pius III or uh, it was Winston Churchill who said, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. It just, it just seems to me that, that that is the way we're going right now. 
it's it's you know it's for a lot of people it's a very frightening time i mean we'd like to know what the real truth is i mean be honest with you it, the history that was taught in my high school my, my elementary school a lot of it was wrong uh i mean a lot of popular stories news at one point in time was popular culture so we learned about the midnight ride of paul revere none of which happened exactly the way it was in, in the original <laughs> poem you know and uh, george washington did not cut down the cherry tree and yada 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 but this became our popular culture this is the history we're teaching our kids we didn't we didn't teach them the, the raw truth about what actually was happening because that was not as entertaining at the time and yeah. so this, these things get lost to history yeah i mean but i think that there's you can't you know we we our nation was built on slavery i mean we we have to acknowledge that if we're going to be honest about our history and like you said if we're going to to if we're going if we're going to literally whitewash history as it was to a certain extent when possibly you and i were in school sorry that's max he's our guest star today too um it, hang on once i'm sorry let me just shut my door maybe that'll help sorry about that hey, just so you know there were no cherries being planted in 18 in 1776 they came from japan i don't know if i actually learned that in school as a fact or not i'm so old that i can't re really remember what the lessons were but I think that we we do need to teach about, you know, that we need to talk about what really happened and what the long term effects of that were. And if that leads to people, I don't think that necessarily means that that it's intended. I don't think that's intended to make white people feel guilt or shame about who they are today but it should make people question the 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 actions of our forefathers i mean it, yeah there's uh again uh, whitewashing of history seems to happen all the time this is not new i mean we, we, we we're still dealing with a lot of fallacies i thought it was interesting when i first started studying the history of, of cannabis how all of it seemed to have been left out of the out of the history books. How important hemp was to the colonies, for instance, or how important it was as a one of the reasons we were in the War of eighteen twelve, being the fact that we were neutral and Britain wanted the uh, the hemp that the that, that France and Russia had. They were trading amongst themselves, and they wouldn't trade to England at the time because they were having a discussion about that. And so we had all these issues. We didn't understand how important this fiber was to just the building of our country in the first place and how much it was a part of our culture and, and country until the late 1800s, essentially. Well, the, the, the I never land. knew anything about hemp until I, I mean, like I grew up in Florida and hemp was a crop here in, in Florida also and in the South. And I never knew anything about it until there we started having discussions about um, medical marijuana and legalization of marijuana in Florida. So that I mean, that was I was very late to the hemp game. I mean, I had, of course, because I'm I'm old and I was pretty hip 
back in the day. So I had hemp bracelets and I had, you know, friends who had hemp clothes and stuff, but I didn't realize how, what, a, what the, the role it played in the agriculture economy um, from, for a very long time in our nation's development. I mean, with, with the exception of only a couple of legislatures, it didn't look like any of the ones that I saw when I first got there in 2012 uh, and I started mulling around the Capitol were all that much into hemp bracelets at the time. <laughs> no, they, st they still aren't, but they wear those red strings now, you know? I, maybe they're done with the red strings. They're on to the next thing. Well, we, anyways, we, we, one, one of the things I, I brought the you out here The mandala strings, the mandala strings. There you go. I, I printed up this article, which I read because I like reading it off paper instead of uh, screens. That's kind of my thing, being an OG. But you had a fantastic article in regards to uh, what has been going on with the pig food license, because everybody are constantly asking us, so when are they going to give out the, the pig food license? For two reasons. Yeah, one, people want to know when the heck are minorities going to actually get a license, and we're not talking about burner owning cookies, because the dude is a, million, is a, a multimillionaire. Right. I don't think, really think he was ever affected on the war on drugs as much as everybody else who, who, were, who were trying to get in the industry. Right. But uh, the other reason, of course, is they want to know uh, when our program is going to change because they're not going to give up those other 22 licenses they're still waiting right. on until right. they give up the pig for license. Sure. So, so you're, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, not over to you. So you can tell us. What the heck has happened with the pig for license? Why hasn't it been given out yet? Why did it take so long to get to uh, just the application stage? Um, so I'm assuming that we're going to just assume because your listeners are sophisticated and they know a lot about Pigford, but I do think it's important to just put a little context in here. The Pigford license is supposed to go to a farmer who had participated in this Pigford litigation. It was named after a, a gentleman who was one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, the class action lawsuits, a series of them uh, against the U.S. Department of Agriculture for discrimination and lending practices um, back in the 80s and 90s. And which was really horrible. I, I, I mean, I think we need to really emphasize what a disadvantage these black farmers were put in because of the federal government's discrimination against them. And so the legislature, so do you, anyway, fast forward, here we are now, one license is earmarked for a farmer who was a participant in that litigation. They got a dozen, they finally, they dragged their feet on starting the application process for that license, which as you said, was included in the 2017 law. I think it, it's also important to remind folks that we have not opened up our application process for a license since the first application process was open when we were only giving licenses for CBD. So Correct. we have, we have, we now have 22 license holders, but that was as a result of litigation and, you know, lobbying and whatever, but we haven't 
the Department of Health has not accepted any new applications for licenses to, since 2017, which when you think about the way that the, how our medical program has grown with, we have what now 700 um, and 50,000, it was around 750 last time I checked. So patients, so anyway, so Black Farmer, the state waited and waited and waited because of um, Joe Redner's flora-grown litigation. That was their excuse. They were supposed to give out the licenses as the number of patients grows. So the, meanwhile, more licenses stacking up, stacking up, stacking up, no action, no action, no action. The governor's office called me in last year in February, I got a sit down with the governor's office. Um, I'm not allowed to say who, but let's just say high ranking staff in the governor's office to tell me that the they're getting ready to send out the Pigford application. They were going to earmark, they were going to put that at the top of the line. Then they were going to roll out the other applications. And I said, well, you know, soon you're getting ready soon. When is that, you know, weeks, months, years, <laughs> supposed to be a couple of months. Here we are now a year, it was a year, more than a year later when they opened up the application process. So sorry, long story. That's where we got to where we are now. A dozen applicants applied for the Pigford license. The problem is the way that the statute was written, you had to be a claimant in the Pigford litigation and also show that you have conducted business in Florida for the past five years. It doesn't matter what kind of business, any kind of business, you also had to show some connection to the cannabis industry. So it really does put the applicants at, in a bind. First of all, the Pigford applicants claimants now are getting up there in years. You know, I think the youngest one that I've come across is in their 70s. So they're in their 80s, some of them in their 90s. One of them was 98 when she applied um, and they're dying. So that's problematic. The other sort of problem associated with those applications is not all of them were able to show that they've been doing business in Florida because they may have been doing business, but they weren't registered to do business as the law required. So just being eligible for the license was problematic. As I saw when I reviewed the letters of errors and omission from the Department of Health to the applicants, it looked like some applicants had never, one applicant, at least one, as far as I could tell, never even was a Pigford applicant. They, he said that his application got thrown into the trash by uh, the the USDA agents he was trying to deal with, and he had a very moving story of discrimination and racism in the community he lived in. Um, but I, so now he was, he was cut out of the Pigford uh, class because of the fact that when he applied to be a member of the Pigford class, the USDA threw out the license 
back then, not not the current administration. Yes, yes, no, back in the day. So he was never even able to participate. So, you know, right off the bat, it's very doubtful that he would even be considered an applicant because he was not able to show that he participated in that litigation, that he received, he was a claimant. So the, the uh, department scored the, scored the applications and they awarded the license to the Gwyn family, Gwyn brothers. And now there are a bunch of challenges. The top scoring applicant, Moton Hopkins died in between the time when he applied and the license was awarded. Yeah, just so you know, I did ask, reach out to them and ask them if they'd be interested in coming on the show today. And at first they were said yes, but then when they talked to their counsel, yes. <laughs> they were no. told, we're in litigation right now. It would not they be are. a good idea. So they are. They I'll are. speak for them because I'm not under an NDA or anything like that. But it, it's, it's unfortunate because they're a good group of people. I think most of these applica applicants truly have their heart in the right place. Although some of them are leaning more towards profit as opposed to towards the patients, but those are the kind of things that, that come out afterwards. But generally the applicants that, who are connected directly to the Pigford license are in their 80s or 90s, not exactly right. up to going out there and, and plowing the North 40 and putting out some seeds. That's true, they are older people. But remember when the first applicants applied, there was this, you had to be in nursery for 30 years and uh, you know, and and you had to be able to show that you had enough money to operate to build the infrastructure, which I think costs like somewhere in the neighborhood. You need about twenty million dollars to be able to really get into this and do it right in the way that the state wants you to do it because of the vertical integration uh, requirement. So they need backers. I mean, the original the original. A license application, the, the original applicants needed backers and the black farmers need needed backers too. And so that's what you have is you have a variety of applications that have, that have all kinds of folks. I think one of them had, you know, 13 LLCs involved with it, it, it just to get the funding to be able to, um, to be able to prove that you could actually operate. One of the applicants, I think, actually, very few of them, I think, actually did this, but one of the applicants who's now challenging used their own life savings um, to pay for the application fee, which was over $160,000, which is more than double what it was in the original round. So, you know, they, they needed to team up with some entities, which is normal in the cannabis world. You know, nobody's, nobody knows, none of these black farmers know how to grow pot. None of them know are, are, or have been operating on the kind of scale that we're talking about. Maybe one of them might have been. That wasn't the one that was the winner. The 
The Gwyns, I think, also might be operating on that kind of scale. They have several hundred, maybe more than a thousand acres, I think. So they could probably, I mean, not that there's going to be doing it outdoors, but. I think the floor, the application for the Florida tree growers had uh, some people who were, who were um, old style uh, cannabis folks who know how to, uh, to cultivate in other states. But yeah, they, they have put that bar too damn high. You're talking about a group who were practically bankrupt when they finally got their money back in the 1990s. And right. now it's 30 years later, and they're being asked for $160,000 just to put in an application. And then they have to make still have a, have a $5 million performance bond. Where right. are they going to get the $5 million performance bond, which has to be put aside? And then you have to be able to build out, which uh, as uh, Senator Brandis had said, when he calculated it, on the average, you need about $40 million. Okay, I thought it was $20 million. So you have a vertical license because okay. you have to do absolutely everything from This has been The Rotation, and you have been a part of it. You can be a bigger part of it by joining Suncoast Normal. Suncoast Normal is an organization that can help you make the change that we all need. Go to the Suncoast Normal website and become a member, because that is how you become part of the change. You can find The Rotation podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. But you can always join us in the rotation at suncoastnormal.org. At that very website, you can join the cannabis movement by becoming a member of Suncoast Normal, gain access to cannabis events, cannabis info, Normal's legal network, and even a free membership to National, all by joining Suncoast Normal. That website, again, is suncoastnorml.org. You can also find us on social media at Suncoast Normal. Uh, find us on both Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And thank you, Gary, and good night. Good night.